Early voting for Proposition 123 has already started, and public concern, if not outright opposition, seems to be on the rise. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll check on whether voter trust in the potential increase in land trust funding for K-12 education is eroding. Arizona Republic columnist Bob Robb is referring to some critics as, quote, flat earthers. I'll talk with Robb and Julie Earfley to take the temperature less than three weeks before Election Day. Also, millennial voters have been actively involved in the current presidential campaign, but a great percentage of them have been energized by Bernie Sanders and not anyone else. I'll ask Alberto Olivas about that and how to get millennials more interested in politics and public service more generally. And writer Amy Silverman keeps very busy as the managing editor of Phoenix New Times. Her home life is intense, too. In her new book, My Heart Can't Even Believe It, Silverman tells intimate stories about her family, including her daughter Sophie, who has Down syndrome. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, I'll check on whether voter trust in the potential increase in land trust funding for K-12 education is eroding. Arizona Republic columnist Bob Robb is referring to some critics as flat earthers. I'll talk with Robb and Julie Earfley. And I'll find out from writer Amy Silverman how having a daughter with Down syndrome and learning more about the condition has affected her life and the life of her family. She has a new book called My Heart Can't Even Believe It. We start today's program by looking more closely at Intel's decision to cut 560 jobs in the city of Chandler. Nearly 250 employees at the manufacturing facility on Dobson Road are being permanently laid off. More than 300 people at the Chandler Boulevard facility will lose their jobs next month. It's part of an overall corporate plan that will see Intel drop up to 12,000 positions worldwide. To explore what the cuts could mean for the Valley, I'm joined by economist Dennis Hoffman of the W.P. Carey School of Business at ASU. Dennis, how significant are these job losses going to be for the Valley? The sheer number of jobs is small in comparison to the overall workforce in the state of Arizona. Uh, but it's not the really the number of jobs. It's what they pay, and it's frankly where the money comes from to pay the salaries. So these are important jobs. They're uh, one of the, let's say, uh, few employers in the state that uh, are clearly export-based businesses. And by that, we mean they they produce products here in the state of Arizona. The products are shipped out of state for consumption elsewhere. And in return, of course, dollars flow into the state. And it's those flows of dollars in result of the production of exports that really helps fuel the rest of our economy. So uh, 560, I believe, is the number uh, relatively small in comparison to the overall workforce in Arizona, but it's a dwindling number of electronics manufacturing jobs. You know, we had far, far more electronics manufacturing jobs in this state 20 years ago than we have today. So it's a, we're on the relentless decline. And unfortunately, when it comes to Intel, they're a great company and and still have, by the way, uh, the better part of 11,000 or even over 11,000 by one report, uh, very high paid uh, workers in this state. So they still contribute. They uh, are battling a very, very competitive environment. And I believe uh, a, a significant number of of the production line workers here in Arizona we're lined up to produce more traditional PCs uh, than uh, some of the business lines that are uh, expanding in Arizona. The traditional PC market, as I think everybody knows, 
has been really quite stagnant in the last few years. Well, Dennis, you mentioned how Arizona had more jobs of this kind a couple of decades ago. Does this mean yeah. that this sort of renewed interest of the last few years in developing a Silicon Desert, does that mean at least for the near future that sort of dream is is in big trouble? Uh, is it going to have to come from small business? Steve, the, the challenge with that dream, and it's a noble goal, and it's, it's great to have that dream, but, uh, you know, when I see the... Uh, the articles about manufacturing is back in the United States, and uh, we, we have to chase uh, potential manufacturing firms, and it'd be great to land those businesses. I mean, th- those are all uh, good stories, but the fact of the matter is manufacturing simply does not bring with it the number of jobs that it did uh, 20 and 30 years ago. Manufacturing is characterized by unbelievable Manufacturing is today characterized by unbelievably sophisticated technology, robotics, automation, that is really very, very much labor-saving. So some of these stories about globalization and jobs going offshore, but I believe a more important piece of the puzzle really is automation. And uh, there's really nothing we can do um, to... uh, you know, to stop that. And I think it's going to be creeping into every parts, uh, every part of our economy. Certainly it's found its way into manufacturing and, and uh, in many ways, shapes and forms. And, uh, you know, and as I watch Major League Baseball these days, uh, I don't think we're too far off from having, you know, one umpire and a robot or something to, <laughs> to, uh, to call balls and strikes and outs. Well, Dennis, I know this is this is a leap to some extent because, as you mentioned, um, what's happening with Intel probably has nothing to do with what's going on in Arizona. But I do wonder, you know, this sort of brings back that old argument about, well, we don't really have headquarters in the Valley. And so right. when you have a company that is based in Santa Clara and has a lot of jobs in Oregon, and yes, still a lot of jobs here in Arizona, but does that send a message or is that, yes, that's a great message to send to have more headquarters, but the business world has changed, and it'd be just really impossible to get those now. Well, it's just very, very competitive, of course, to hold on to headquarters, you know, to, to get them in the first place and then hold on, retain them. I think you're going to see job growth in in different ways. Small businesses uh, will certainly grow. I, I think uh, professional services, job growth um, <clears throat> will take place in lots of places, financial services. Uh, and there's export-based uh, aspects to to those types of employment opportunities. Uh, they're they're just not the traditional high-tech manufacturing opportunities that have, you know, been been so prosperous for the state historically. Uh, but but nonetheless, we're going to see some job growth, I think, in in those areas. Uh, uh, but it's a challenge. We are uh, we're out there competing with with everybody now. I think that. Uh, the, the era of complacency in the state of Arizona is certainly over. I think decade after decade of, you know, waking up every morning and seeing another uh, 10, 15, 20,000 people moving in um, to the state, it, you know, those days are over. We're just not the population growth magnet that we used to be. And as a result, we have to compete with um, with, with other metropolitan areas and other economies uh, very, very aggressively. We, 
we cannot afford to be complacent. And I think our economic development folks certainly know that very, very well. I know the folks in the governor's office know that well. It's a very difficult, competitive environment out there, and uh, we all have to embrace it. We have to, uh, you know, impart the the positive message of Arizona and, and articulate the, the the positive attributes that we certainly have uh, in, in this state, but it's uh, it's certainly competitive. Economist Dennis Hoffman of the W.P. Carey School of Business at ASU. Dennis, good to talk with you. Thank you. Great, Steve. Have a great day. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. At the state capitol, Republican legislative leaders have come together on a nearly $9.6 billion spending plan, but there's still some practical work to be done. A big part of that, of course, is getting a majority of House and Senate rank-and-file members to vote for the package. That seems to be more of a challenge in the House at this point, and that's why we turn now to the House reporter for the Arizona Capital Times, Hank Stevenson. Hank, good morning. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Yeah, good to talk with you. So what are you hearing from some members of the House about any hesitation they might have about the proposed agreement? Well, putting together a budget is always difficult, and there's always going to be detractors on, you know, a a hundred different items, Um, people who don't agree with uh, one one sentence, one number in the budget. But the real uh, opposition seems to be in K-12 education funding. Um, Lawmakers in the House especially kind of felt burned by last year's budget process where the Senate really drove things and uh, it put into effect a very austere budget. Um, I think part of the backlash uh, over last year's budget uh, process led to Prop 123, the education uh, funding issue that will be on the special election in May. Um, And lawmakers basically still feel that even with the passage of Prop 123, some of the things in the the budget this year uh, either will will harm schools or don't do enough to kind of backfill some of the money that schools have been denied, you know, through the Great Recession. Uh, So, you know, uh, there's a lot of different issues that people are picking at, may or may not have problems with. But the one that's really holding things up is K-12 funding, especially in the House. And so, you know, this is a journalist. We always like to lump people into groups. Are these members more moderate? Are they from rural areas, urban areas? A little bit of everything. Um, Really, this is not the moderates driving the train, as we've seen in past years. Um, If anything, I would say it's a lot of freshmen, really, Uh, freshmen from all over the state, Um, rural lawmakers, uh, you know, urban lawmakers, uh, Republicans who are are new to the process, especially, and and really, as I said, you know, kind of felt burned by last year and don't want to go through that again. So are taking their time, are making sure that, you know, they're not going to face a lot of criticism uh, over this budget, especially in education funding, which is, you know, on top of most voters' minds right now. But it it really spans the political spectrum. I mean, obviously, Democrats are going to be against this budget almost no matter what's in it. Um, But as far as the Republicans go, it's it's really not just moderate. um, It's kind of all over the map. Well, Hank, if we're talking specifically then about K-12 funding and less about feeling burned about how quickly the budget process went last time. How much money are we talking about here? Because obviously, Democrats would like there to be six-figure millions in there, and certainly that's not what they're fighting over. How much are we talking about? 
Really, I think it comes down to a well-placed $20, $30 million could uh, change a lot of minds about this budget. Uh, it's really not that much money that we're fighting over when you're thinking about a $9.6, almost a billion-dollar budget. Uh, but these are really key issues. It's It's got some lawmakers concerned that some of the formula changes we've done to K-12 funding, if we don't uh, stop those or at least put in a stopgap measure um, while we while we change the way that we're funding schools, that even with the passage of Prop 123, their specific school districts uh, will not see an increase. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a relatively minor amount uh, when you're looking at the entire budget. But, you know, $30 million is nothing to sneeze at, especially for some small school district um, that's barely getting by as it is. So finally, Hank, what's the current vibe then? Because typically when these things start to move, they move relatively quickly. Are members feeling like it's time for them to get home? And once some of these things are perhaps compromised, will be done by the weekend? Or are there other complications that could pop up in the next couple of days? Well, there's always other complications that could pop up, um, but the train is moving, and once it leaves the station, there's it's really, really hard to stop. Um, the Senate yesterday, last night actually, stuck around pretty late to uh, do a late introduction of the budget bill. So that was the first glimpse we got at actually what this plan is. Um, and the budget bills they introduced were kind of based on an agreement that were worked at, that was worked out about a week ago. So everyone kind of acknowledges there will be some amendments, um, but the train is gearing up and it's going to leave the station, uh, certainly on the Senate side. Um, the worst case scenario, I think, for, for House members is that the Senate passes a budget that the House can't agree with um, and the, the House Republicans uh, basically refuse to vote on this thing and it sits over the weekend, which you know, if lawmakers go home to their districts and hear from their constituents, it's always a big no-no to let a budget sit over the weekend if you're trying to approve this thing. It's it's much easier to do it in one fell swoop. Hank Stevenson covers the House for the Arizona Capital Times. Hank, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And still to come on here and now, we'll talk about concerns over Proposition 123. And then later this hour, Amy Silverman talks about her new book. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by the Sonoran Desert Chorale, presenting Between Oceans, Music of the Americas. Songs of love, faith, humor, and home provide a flavor of the lands and people this Saturday and Sunday. Info at sonorandesertchorale.org. You're listening to Here and Now on KJZZ at 91.5 and online at kjzz.org. Be with us today at 1 for BBC NewsHour. Around the state right now, cloudy skies, 50 degrees. It's in Flagstaff. It's partly sunny and 60 in Prescott. Tucson reporting sunny skies and 73. It's 77 right now in Yuma and 73 in Casa Grande. Well, your favorite car has been around the block a few too many times and you've decided to buy that shiny new one you've been wanting. You can turn your old car into a value-built donation for your favorite programs on KJZZ. Complete the easy form at cars.kjzz.org. Partly sunny skies right now in Phoenix, 73 degrees at 1121.
You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Election day for Proposition 123 is May 17th. The early ballots have already gone out. The measure would make changes to the state land trust as part of $3.5 billion in funding for K-12 schools in Arizona. But even with State Treasurer Jeff DeWitt's negative comments about the initiative, the organized effort in favor of it has raised a lot more money and generated a lot more support. That doesn't mean concerns have not been raised, in part about whether voters can trust Governor Doug Ducey and lawmakers to recommit to K-12 funding on top of what Prop 123 would do. So what is the tone now? And are people who are expressing concerns, quote, flat earthers? Arizona Republic columnist Bob Robb used that phrase in a recent column. He joins me now, as does Julie Erfley, communications consultant at Earthly Uncuffed. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Good to be with you. All right, Bob, let's define what flat earthers in this context means to you. Uh, it means people who uh, deny what political reality is, at least thus far in Arizona. Uh, people who, I mean, let's set the context. Mm -hmm. Uh, the schools who are the plaintiffs in the lawsuit over inflation funding and are the beneficiaries of the state trust are saying this is a good deal. We would like to see it implemented. Uh, so you have people who are opposing it uh, and they are fantasizing about a political universe in Arizona that doesn't currently exist and there doesn't seem to be any prospect for it. Uh, Governor Ducey uh, ran on the platform of cutting taxes every year. Uh, he won 53% uh, to 42%. A tax increase earmarked for education was on the ballot in 2012. It lost 63% to 37%. There is a track record here. Uh, Dedicated funding for education supported and referred by the legislature and championed by a Republican governor tends to get voter approval. Those that try to buck that trend don't. And there is a sense out there uh, that if we turn down Prop 123, uh, that will trigger a political revolution in Arizona and suddenly people who have historically lost elections in Arizona will win and we'll get rid of the folks who are currently there and get uh, people who the opponents would prefer to see calling the shots. Julie, I want to get your take initially on Prop 123 mm -hmm. as it stands. And beyond that, I guess uh, perspective I'm hearing from a lot of folks is they want to express concern about it, but that also doesn't mean they're going to vote against it because they are concerned about what might come next without it. Right. I, I presume you, like many others, may think it's flawed, but what are your general, what's your general take on Prop 123? Uh, my general take is that it's, a, it's probably one of the most difficult votes that a lot of people are going to take. And I don't think that the concerns are as simple as what Bob has stated. I, I really don't think that, at least from the folks that I'm hearing from who are on the fence, who are saying, we just aren't sure what to do. It feels like a lose-lose situation. Mm -hmm. It's not that they think that if they vote against it, there's going to be some kind of political revolution. I think they recognize that that's just not reality. And that's not what I'm hearing actually from the opposition at all. I'm hearing a couple of different things, that there is, there's concern. Um, one, the state treasurers, including four former Republican state treasurers, as well as the current state treasurer, have said that this may be unconstitutional and that if we pass it, it may up, end up in court anyway. So then there's a protracted 
court case, and then if that fails, then you go yet back to the original court case. So there's this fear that the schools really aren't going to get the money right away. And so that's one of the fears that they have. The other fear that they have is that we pass one, two, three, and it becomes an excuse for really deep tax cuts, tax cuts that, as we know, do not get overturned and end up being harmful in the long run for schools and for our state in general. And those are really the concerns that I'm hearing from the opposition. So then a lot of it does come down to the word trust in a different sense, this idea that because it came to this, because the lawsuit dragged on. And and I do wonder, though, does Governor Ducey get any, even with the tax cut concern, does he get any grace on this issue, considering he was not involved initially and he stepped in to try to settle this thing? Is there still an issue where the legislature not trusted, but the governor, maybe we're not sure yet? I don't think so, (laughs) mainly because he's proposing another tax cut this year. And I think a lot of people are looking at what's going on in other states, Kansas in particular, where we have a governor who's been saying a lot of the same things that Governor Ducey is saying, that somehow if we take the income tax down to zero, it will usher in this economic prosperity that we've yet to see and that studies have shown is just completely unrealistic. And that, again, in the long run, that this is going to be harmful, not just for education, Education, but just for our state in general. Bob, what about what Julie said about the treasurers? You've been uh, read an interesting column about uh, about Dean Martin and using all caps, and, <laughs> and he was, of course, the guy that Governor Napolitano called Chicken Little at the time. Right. Um, what the state treasurers are not saying is that the current distribution formula has grossly shortchanged schools since it was changed back in 1998. Uh, There is nearly as much in the trust in retained undistributed earnings as the increase in distribution that Prop 123 would provide. Uh, So in many ways, you could say the schools really need money right now. They've been shortchanged. Now's an appropriate time to make it up for them. Uh, Jeff DeWitt does not have standing to challenge Proposition 123. He is not the trustee uh, of the state land trust. There is a board, and that board uh, consists of people as as defined by the state legislature. The legislature tomorrow could remove uh, DeWitt from the board. It would require going to federal court Uh, Because it's a federal law issue, the argument is is that this violates the Enabling Act, and you would have to get an injunction to keep this first tranche of money from being appropriated uh, in uh, June. I mean, if Prop 123 passes, there's about $300 million that gets distributed to the schools in June. Uh, And I just don't think a federal judge is going to do that. And the guy who authored and, and passed through Congress... The provision that's being cited, John Shattuck, uh, says that it permits what 123 provides. Uh, And all the beneficiaries of the trust will be in court saying uh, this is uh, constitutional and this is appropriate. It's a long shot provision uh, and not one that I think should cloud voters' judgment about whether 123 should be passed. Jill, I want to come back to what you were talking about in terms of how voters potentially feel about this thing and the idea that it's going to be a rough vote for many people. I'm curious because even if we look at the reality of the situation where Bob is saying this too, pretty much everyone has said this, the legislature underfunded education and who knows, maybe want to do that in the future. 
But I guess when it comes down to it, can we, certainly we're all emotional about our children, but can we afford to be, to take the risk in this case of saying this deal is, leaves people with a bad taste in, in our mouths, but without it, what's going to come next? It almost leaves that, that unknown feeling of, as Bob said, not getting the money there that is needed now. I, can we afford to think short term, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't think the people that are opposing it are thinking short term. I think they're thinking long term, actually, and that that's where the opposition comes is long term. This may be a great short term fix, but long term, what does it do? Um, you know, I one of the things that we're hearing from people who are opposing this, and I'm not saying that this is reality by any means, but one of the things that they have argued is that um, perhaps if this goes down in flames, that it would force the legislature, it would force the governor to try and find some different type of compromise that may be more palatable to voters or to education advocates. Um, I, again, I don't know that that's really a political reality that happens, although one of the things that they have quoted or cited, rather, is the governor's sort of declining approval ratings and the fact that, you know, we talked about how voters responded to education initiatives in the past. But I will tell you this last year, um, education is polling as the number one issue in Arizona. I worked on a campaign in 2014. It was not polling as the number one issue just in 2014. So things really have changed in the political environment. Based on, well, whatever happens on May 17th, if Prop 123 wins or loses, how much of an impact do you think that could have on the passion that people have going forward into the primary season or general election season, specifically about the legislature? We know districts are gerrymandered. There can't be a huge impact, but is it possible in certain Republican primaries we see so-called moderates winning more because people think, okay, education is number one? You know, I, I don't necessarily think so, because what I'm finding is that it's not just Democrats that are torn. I, I'm seeing a lot of Republicans that are torn as well, and certainly independents. It it actually kind of reminds me of what's going on in the presidential primary race, where you have this Trump cruise, different camps, and then you have on the Democrats, you know, the Bernie Hillary supporters. There's division you know, within the parties. And I think that's what we're seeing on Prop 123. It's, it's almost just a, a, sort of a, a statewide issue that, that is very similar to what's happening in the presidential primary. So I, I really don't see it as that big of an issue uh, as far as changing the, the makeup of the legislature. And uh, on the Republican side, it was the moderates that, uh, that supported Prop 123 from the get-go. It was the conservatives that were the reluctant Sell. Well, could we, yeah, could we see something like the Medicaid expansion, where a lot of effort was put into defeating moderates who came out in favor of something like this? Now, the, the Republican leadership is united uh, behind Prop 123. Um, moderates uh, came to it first. Uh, so I just, there, there will be, if Prop 123, well, actually, irrespective of what happens to Prop 123, uh, we are headed for a very broad discussion of education, finance, and tax policy as a result of the expiration of the six-tenths of a cent sales tax uh, that was enacted by voters back in 2000. So that discussion is going to take place no matter what. Uh, the defeat of Prop 123, I think, will uh, make that, uh, on the Republican side, um, a more uh, difficult uh, and bitter uh, discussion. Uh, I have no idea what it does on the Democratic side. Uh, some of them will be thrilled uh, at 
uh, Ducey and the, what they perceive as a repudiation of Ducey and the state legislature, but you also have some Democrats stepping up. Uh, you have Fred Duvall, the 2014 gubernatorial nominee. Down in Pima County, Steve Farley uh, has uh, offered a very reflective uh, piece on his Facebook page about why he is supporting uh, Prop 123. And then I think views among Democratic leaders are changing as the number of districts that enact two budgets uh, based upon whether 123 passes or not. And the pass budget has substantial increases in teacher salaries. Uh, that is sort of cracking some of the opposition among Democratic elected officials. I've got less than a minute or so to go, but I want to get, Julie, start with you on your perspective on what happens next. Is there going to be not a proposition, but just this concept of a four, five, six and coming up next if 123 passes? Is there going to be momentum, whether from the governor's office or from rank and file folks or grassroots people, that they're going to say, this is part one. We are going to follow through with whatever part two may be. I think definitely. I think it's going to be more of a grassroots effort, to be quite honest, as well. I'm seeing a lot of um, particularly parent groups that are stepping up that are saying we need to take a much more active role and we need to demand a four, five, six. And Bob, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, as I said, we're, a, a broader discussion will be mandated by the expiration of Prop 301. The education organizations would like to duplicate this experience and negotiate with the governor and the legislature and come on with a solution that gets referred. If that is unsuccessful, there will be an initiative. The, the, the tax will not go away without voters get, being given a chance to extend it or even increase it. Arizona Republic columnist Bob Robb and Julie Earthley of Earthley Uncuffed. Thank you both for coming in. Thank Good you. to be with you. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Last summer, we spoke with retired Congressman Ed Pastor about the creation of the Pastor Center for Politics and Public Service at ASU. Pastor had returned to Arizona after serving in Washington from 1991 to 2015 and wanted to stay involved in public service, including by helping students learn more about the process and why they should want to get involved. Recently, Alberto Olivas was named executive director of the Pastor Center, and he joins me now to talk about it. Alberto, how do you get students to feel not cynical about public service and also to feel like bipartisanship is possible, even with what we see perhaps on some of the cable networks and here on some radio stations? One approach, and I think the, the starter approach, is to get students thinking about public policy and advocacy at a smaller scale, mm -hmm. uh, giving them incremental successes so that they don't feel like they have to start by deciding to run for office. You know, that's that should not be the first conversation we have with students that are already unsure about whether or not public policy is for them or careers in public service is for them. Um, so really the approach is to look at what are the driving interests and concerns that students have? What, mm -hmm. What's bothering them and keeping them up late at night? And what are they really excited about doing? Um, and how can we attach that to public policy questions and give them experiences where they begin to see how they can use their talents and skills in ways that are of service to the community. And what's a surprise, I think, to many people is just how much 
this generation of college students really, really want to make a difference in the community around them. So if we were to, and I think that surprises a lot of people that stereotype this generation perhaps as very narcissistic or self-centered or not concerned with political questions. Um, and they'll point to things like voting trends. Um, so if you looked at a graph of the voting rates of 18 to 25-year-olds over time, it's a depressing graph. It's a line that goes fairly steadily downwards in an ominous direction. But if we made a similar graph over time of 18 to 25-year-olds doing volunteerism and community service projects, it's the exact opposite graph. So what that tells us is that young people are as concerned and as interested in making things better for their communities as ever, maybe more so. But they don't think that voting is a way to solve problems. They don't see politics as as doing anything useful, but they want to get engaged. So we need to leverage their interest in the community issues around them and their immediate experience and help them learn, okay, if you're concerned about these homelessness issues in your neighborhood or abandoned animals, abused pets, or uh, domestic violence, or human trafficking, how do you impact those issues locally? Sometimes at a young age, people think about how we're a little bit, have a little bit more Teflon. We're thinking we bounce back from things a little bit better. But let's say you are involved at the local level, trying to get involved in an issue, and member of city council, legislature, yeah, sort of sloughs you off, doesn't, doesn't really get what you're coming from and get where you're coming from. What is it about that foundation that you can make it so kids don't throw up their hands and say, well, I gave it a shot. I guess the system is against me, so forget it. I mean, I don't want to make it that simple, but right. it, sometimes emotionally it can be that simple. That's that's kind of the core of it is we don't just want to recruit students and throw them at public problems. We have to prepare them to effectively engage in the levers of change. And then when they're not successful, to use that in a productive way. Um, so like in science experiments, if your experiment doesn't work, it's not a bad thing. You learned something from the fact that all the flies died, and, and, and that should inform the next time you do the experiment. So we have to have that same approach to policy experiments for students as well. Okay, what did I try? It didn't work. Um, what, what can I learn from this the next time I, I go forward on this kind of an issue? Um, and really kind of study that as intensely as we would the fruit fly experiment. Um, but we need to ramp them up to do that effectively. So we shouldn't just throw them at these issues without giving them uh, incremental learning opportunities around, okay, uh, who are you talking to uh, in the, at the state legislature, at the city council? What are their priorities? What are ways to frame what you want them to do in ways that speak to what they're trying to accomplish? And even if that doesn't work, well, how does that inform what you might try the next time? So that it's a productive learning experience. It's, and maybe they didn't get what they wanted immediately, but it can maybe be food for thought for how they move forward. And the other important thing that we should be focusing on is how can students help us figure out and design new models for political and civic engagement that um, are more responsive to the way we live today? Mm. So if we try and teach leadership and political engagement the way we did it in the 80s and the 90s, that's not going to be very um, relevant to how people live today, how we get information about what's happening, how decisions are made. Um, it's this generation that's going to figure out, for example, social media. Everyone's trying to figure out how to use social media to do social awareness mm. campaigns and get people engaged. And there's a lot of criticism about slacktivism, how easy it is to just like things but not actually do anything. 
um, it's this generation that has to figure out what's the right uh, models for building community networks using those platforms and getting people informed and involved in meaningful ways. How about diversity? And I mean that on multiple levels, not just um, folks who may be of a different color and who may have been, who may have felt like their group of people have been held down or discriminated against, because that's obviously a vital thing to talk about, but also in terms of diversity of opinion. I mean, there's this stereotype, I think, that, that many young people, especially those who are drawn to Bernie Sanders, for example, have this particular bent and this particular philosophy. But philosophies are also sort of fungible the older we get. So how important is it that we're sort of, we realize that younger people are open-minded. It's about getting involved in the process and not necessarily your point of view is the one that has to triumph. All right. So that's, I call that the the vitamin and the applesauce. That's the hard part of this. I think it's rel- comparatively easy to get students to say, okay, here's some opportunities to do some important work around these things you care about. Um, but getting them to see the value of having to collaborate with people they disagree with and um, work and, and to want to understand where they're coming from, mm-hmm. that's a little bit more of a challenge. But uh, we need to uh, pose that in terms of what's in it for me. Um, so for the student, how is it in your interest to learn to negotiate and discuss issues with people that you wouldn't otherwise because they're on the other side of the table from you on gun issues or reproductive rights or uh, voter protection issues or what have you, um, and help them see how by engaging with that disagreement, you become stronger and you become better able to defend your own interests. So we need to, we need to provide them with safe environments to have those discussions and to figure out through those discussions that even though you may really disagree about certain strategies and tactics, at the core, on all of these big issues, we all basically want the same things. So guns on campus is a great example. I use it all the time. Um, people get you know, very hot under the collar about whether you are for or against guns on campus. But if you start by thinking about what do we all want? We all want a safe campus. Nobody wants little kids to be shot at their schools. So how do we get a safe campus? We might not agree on the policy question, but there's a lot of things we can work with together um, despite our disagreements, to accomplish a safer and more responsive campus if something does happen. Um, and in terms of uh, diversity of thought, um, I think what we can show students through engaging them in, in some of these uh, practical activities, working in the community with community organizations and, and government organizations to, to do real projects, is that without that diversity of thought, you don't come up with very good solutions. You'll come up with things that seem easy and make sense to you that don't work because you didn't have someone in the room to push back and say, that's not really going to work or that's not going to work for me. Um, If you're coming up with solutions to help veterans readjust to society and there's no veterans in your group, you're going to come up with solutions that feel good but don't help anybody. So you need to have that full diversity of thought throughout your process of a political engagement strategy in order to come up with strategies that are going to be effective and, and really have meaningful impact. Alberto Olivas is executive director of the Pastor Center for Politics and Public Service at ASU. Alberto, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk with New Times Managing Editor Amy Silverman and writer about her new book, My Heart Can't Even Believe It, A Story of Science, Love, and Down Syndrome. Stay with us.
Looking to grow your business? Become a KJZZ business member and expand your reach with a philanthropic donation to KJZZ. Your business will connect with community-minded professionals who value public radio. Visit businessmember.kjzz.org or call 480-774-8274. And good morning. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. In the Valley forecast, partly sunny today for the Phoenix area. We're looking for a high near 84 degrees. It's going to cool back down into the 70s tomorrow. Partly sunny skies, a 20% chance for some rain, and even some thunderstorms are possible. Stay with us at 12 for NPR's Here and Now. Bernie Sanders' campaign is reassessing where it goes after Hillary Clinton won four out of five primary states last night, and an economist who says that free trade agreements benefit the economy even as they cause job losses. Here and Now from Boston starts at noon on KJZZ. Right now, under partly sunny skies, it's 76 degrees in Phoenix at 1146. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Writer Amy Silverman keeps pretty busy with her day job as managing editor of Phoenix New Times, but she also has a pretty intense home life. In her personal new book, My Heart Can't Even Believe It, a story of science, love, and Down syndrome, Silverman writes about giving birth to her daughter Sophie, finding out the girl had Down syndrome, and discovering she'd fallen in love with her as a 7-year-old. The official launch of the book is this Sunday at 3 at Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe, and Amy Silverman joins me. Hi, Amy. Hi, Steve. So... You get real personal in this book, and I want to talk about once you found out for sure that Sophie had Down syndrome, what did that feel like in the hospital? What, what, did, you, what did you want to do, and were you more worried about her or yourself? It felt like a gut, a gut punch, you know, which is a funny thing to say when someone's just had a C-section. But I remember having that urge to get up out of the hospital bed and flee, but I was attached by all of these hoses and tubes and, and who knows what else. Uh, and, and honestly, I was thinking a lot more about myself and my husband, Ray, and our daughter, Annabelle, than I was about Sophie. She looked fine sitting in the incubator. Well, you wrote about letting people know about it. And one friend in particular almost sort of on the phone said to you, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and then got back to you later and apologized for that. But w- was that the way you would have reacted Oh, friend. absolutely. I was calling people. Uh, I had a long list of, of friends to call, and I would call, and I'd say, the baby was born, and her name was Sophie, and we have some news. We have some bad news. She has Down syndrome. And then we would cry. And then, I don't know, maybe eight or nine friends in, one stopped me, and very luckily she's a gentle person, and she very gently said, you know, Amy, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And I said, I don't know what you mean. It's Down syndrome. It's it's this problem. And she said that she had worked with kids with Down syndrome before. And, and you know, I mean, looking back now, she was using some stereotypes, but she talked about how they were loving and, and they and, and a lot of people with Down syndrome lead productive lives. And that was a real shift for me. I, I didn't know that. I, Sophie's the first person with Down syndrome I ever met. Well, you do mention seeing people at, let's say, the grocery store who looked like baggers, and you thought, well, is that perhaps all we can hope for? Right, from that? and and I, I, you know, and 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 I want to make sure I say that I think that that uh, being a, a bagger at a grocery store is not necessarily a bad mm-hmm. job, and actually, as Sophie has grown 
and I've taken her to the grocery store and watched her gravitate toward the bagging section and want to bag herself. It's interesting how it's a it's almost like a community center in a way, and and I can sort of see why that's why that's a great job. But I didn't want that to be her only choice. Mm-hmm. None of us would want our kids to have only one choice for a job. That was the only thing I'd ever seen. It was the only thing I could think of. Sophie's made great advances. You write about her in school. She's done a lot. Of, she's, she's certainly got her own personality, no doubt about that. How much do you worry about the short term now and how much the long term? Are, are, you, are you thinking that there will be developments going forward? Or are you thinking that you and your husband will have to take care of Sophie to some degree or other for her whole life? Well, I think if Sophie had her way, she would sleep in between the two of us every night for the rest of her life. Um, but actually, I say that, and at the same time, she talks a lot about what she wants to do when she grows up. So I think she, she'd like to have it both ways. Um, one of the ways that I, that I coped with having a kid with special needs for a really long time was I re- you really could not ask me about anything more than, say, the next 24 hours. I could focus on that. I could deal with that. But beyond that, it it started getting really stressful. And now that Sophie's almost 13, I I can start thinking about it in little bursts. So much of the book is is fun and inspiring. But one part I promised you before we we spoke, we're not going to talk much about science. But Sophie had heart problems as a very little girl. And you found out that a pretty high percentage of children born with Down syndrome have heart problems. What did you find out about that? So about 50% of the babies born with Down syndrome have, uh, for lack of a better term, a hole in the heart. And that's what Sophie has. And, and it's a pretty serious condition. And, and typically death will result if you don't operate. And one of the things that was interesting to me is that they, they're only very recently have they even been able to diagnose it. So your baby would just die of a heart attack. Uh, and back in those days, you know, pre, pre-1970s, probably in an institution. Um, but they, they couldn't even look at the heart to see that there was this hole. So uh, the advances have, have really been recent and amazing. What did that feel like as far as piling on goes when you're adjusting to having a child with Down syndrome and everyone's trying to come to grips with it to some extent, and then you find out that she has this awful physical problem, this little tiny baby's going to have to have surgery. What did that do to you and Ray? So nobody wants their kid to have to have open heart surgery. And certainly Ray is a more evolved human being than I am. And he was simply devastated that she had to have heart surgery. I was too. But in terms of personal relationships, going back to your question about telling friends about it, mm-hmm. You know, and particularly looking back now, I realize how awkward it is to tell a friend that you've had a baby with an intellectual disability. Um, And so what I started to do was, you know, I would call, hey, Steve, you know, I have this news. Uh, Ray and I had our baby and she has Down syndrome. And then before you could react, I would rush in and say, and she needs open heart surgery. And then we could both cry about it. And there wasn't going to be any judgment because nobody wants to have a baby you know, who needs open heart surgery. I mean, not that I didn't want her, but no, nobody wants their baby to have to have open heart surgery. Now, so you, that, that was how we coped with it. You're a writer. On top of that, you're a journalist. And you approach this book in the ways of looking at it as a journalist. You ask so many people lots of questions, medical professionals and whatnot. Did learning more about that in any way make this seem less emotional? Did it become more practical? To, uh, the more you knew about the condition 
in some ways, did it make it, I'm going to use easier, that's a ridiculous word to use, but did it make it somewhat easier to adjust to? I think it was my coping mechanism. Um, when I, I, for a really long time, I wrote these obnoxiously long, in-depth stories for New Times, and typically about a topic I knew nothing about. And so when, it, when, it, when the shot kind of wore off of having Sophie in our lives, and, and she'd recovered from heart surgery, and I had to figure out how to make sense of this, I, I just sort of naturally approached Sophie like she was a story I was working on. And I got a big box, which I always do when I'm working on a story, and I started just filling it with documents and books, and I would stay up late at night and buy crazy movies about Down syndrome, anything I could find that had to do with Down syndrome, I would just put in the box without editing myself. And then when I was ready, I went back and, and sort of rifled through it and, and tried to make sense of it. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Amy Silverman, managing editor of Phoenix New Times. Her new book is called My Heart Can't Even Believe It, a story of science, love, and Down syndrome. The official launch of the book is this Sunday at 3 o'clock at Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe. Amy, in the intro, I referred to you sort of realizing you'd fallen in love with Sophie when she was seven. So I wanted to ask you to read a little bit from page six of your book and how you relate that. Finally, curiosity won out over fear. It was not an overnight process, far from it. For so long, Sophie was my daughter daughter who had Down syndrome. She was cute, I knew I should love her, and I did love her in some basic way. But she wasn't just my daughter in the same way Annabelle was. It was never that simple, not for many years. I was so busy worrying about the parts that I didn't let myself consider the sum. When Sophie was born, I abandoned the luxury of simply sitting back and enjoying my kid. Instead, I made doctor appointments and looked for therapists, fought with school administrators, and admonished people who used the word retarded. And then one day around Sophie's seventh birthday, I woke up and realized she was no longer my daughter with Down syndrome. She was my kid, and I loved her, and not because I was supposed to. I can't tell you exactly what did it. Time, I guess. And the fact that she was walking and talking, making friends, expressing opinions. Sophie had become her own little person, something I'd long ago decided would never happen. I was wrong. She had ideas and opinions, sometimes even stronger than those of her peers. One day I walked into her second grade classroom to volunteer. The kids were learning how to use computers. Every other kid was on the correct screen, learning a basic function. Sophie had found her way to the Target website and was shopping for Olivia the Pig merchandise. The teacher smiled and rolled her eyes, and I suppose I should have scolded Sophie. But I couldn't. I loved every bit of her in that I can't stop staring at this kid, don't you see how amazing this kid is, way. That's Amy Silverman reading from her new book, My Heart Can't Even Believe It, a story of science, love, and Down syndrome. Does Sophie see herself as different? She does, and she doesn't like it. Okay. Sort of around the time that I started to understand what it meant, and and in a in a good way, and and how Sophie fit into my world, and and to make peace with it, uh, that was when Sophie started saying she did not want to have Down syndrome. And how does uh, how does Annabelle feel about this? How is their relationship then? They have an incredible relationship. They squabble like any sisters do. They're about two years apart. Annabelle's older, um, but. Annabelle has an incredible capacity to appreciate and understand Sophie and to see her, I think, in a way that transcends the way a lot of other people see people with disabilities. 
you write so much personal stuff that I, I feel comfortable asking this, I guess, to some extent. Did, uh, did having Sophie strain your marriage relationship, uh, or did you and Ray come together more closely? How did, how did that progress going forward? Boy, that's a good question. That's not something anyone's ever asked me. Um, I think that having kids in general both pulls you together and apart, and there's all kinds of decision-making that you have to make all the time. But Ray and I are um, both strong-willed people who will fight about just about everything. I was just telling him I think we should have a a television show um, called The Morning Harumph because we get up in the morning and we start talking about the news and disagreeing right away. So, um, you know, not to make light of it, but... um, but I, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, that is just our life. So he's an incredible father. Have you been determined at all to, with the, what you have seen with Sophie's schooling, with how maybe other people look at her a little bit more than maybe they would look at another child, has that made you want to change people's opinions about things and about how, how Down syndrome affects an individual child, how it affects broader society? Because there is still a lot of concern about how whether a child with Down syndrome can be on the normal track, as it were, in school, and whether whether administrators are honest about how they feel about educating kids who have that. So I think I approach it more as a journalist than as an advocate. And my goal is to share our family's story, to share Sophie's story. I don't really feel comfortable weighing in on on what's going on with other kids because I think every situation is completely unique. Uh, so that that it makes me nervous to make generalizations. But I wish that I could have known Sophie before I had Sophie, if that makes sense. Yeah. How does Sophie feel about the book? She's thrilled. And she's on the cover as well. She's on the cover. Um, she grabbed a copy as soon as they came in the mail, and she started looking for the word cuddle. She wanted to make sure the word cuddle was in the book. So she was one of my first readers. She's, she's very excited. And, and you know, people ask me, um, do I feel badly leaving Annabelle out because she's not, she really doesn't appear in the book much. And I asked Annabelle about that, and she said she thinks it's the perfect situation because she doesn't particularly care for the spotlight, and she knows that Sophie does. I mean, in our last minute or so, we have to make sure we talk about curly hair because that's mentioned a lot in the course of the book. Talk about how you and Ray have curly hair and Annabelle has curly hair. So can kids with Down syndrome have curly hair? They can. I mean, there's always an exception to the rule. And I've met kids with Down syndrome with curly hair over the years. But almost never. Uh, It was something that I noticed when Sophie was just a few weeks old, that her hair was very straight. And I started to think back to, you know, references and culture that I'd seen because I didn't know anybody with Down syndrome. I had never seen anyone who did not have stick straight hair. And that was my question for the geneticist when we went to see him. I think he was a little horrified. Uh, And and I've I've been trying to answer the question scientifically as to why, why people with Down syndrome don't tend to. So is there a problem in the Silverman Stern family if, if someone doesn't have curly hair? Well, there's a problem with Sophie and because she doesn't like to comb her hair, and I don't blame her. And I didn't really realize until all this played out that Ray and Annabelle and I don't comb our hair because we, we, you know, we kind of mush it up to try to get extra curl out of it. So it makes sense you know, why Sophie doesn't like to comb hers. So she just ends up with a big rat's nest. 
Amy Silverman's new book is called My Heart Can't Even Believe It, A Story of Science, Love, and Down Syndrome. The official launch of the book is on Sunday at 3 o'clock at Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe. Amy, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much to Bruce Drummond and Annika Klein for their help on today's program. If you missed any part of our conversation with Amy or Prop 123, go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. NPR's Here and Now is next on member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. It's 12 o'clock. Have a great rest of the day.